Welcome to the Center for International and Regional Studies at Georgetown University in Qatar. These podcasts are part of a research initiative titled Building a Legacy, Qatar FIFA World Cup 2022. Welcome, everybody. My name is Professor Daniel Reiche, and today I'm talking to Farah Skani, digital editor at Al Jazeera English. He's also author of a book about cricket, which we are going to discuss at the end of the podcast. However, main focus of today's conversation is Al Jazeera's reporting of the FIFA World Cup 2022. For our audience abroad, Al Jazeera is the largest news network in the Middle East and based in Qatar's capital, Doha. Faraz, thank you for joining us today. Welcome. Good to be here. Good to be talking to you guys. From looking at your publications, it is obvious that you are interested in sports beyond the final score. For example, in July 2020, you published an article titled Black Lives Matter, Should Sport and Politics Mix? Why do you think it is relevant to not only report about the results of games, but also its societal impact? I think it's quite simple, um, to be honest, because uh, when you look at sports and when you look at athletes uh, and we look at the, such a huge role that sport, those things play in everyday lives. I mean, come to think of it, you're following a football club. Yesterday was the Champions League quarterfinals. Uh, you want to stay up all night despite whatever time zone you're in and you want to follow your team's progress uh, throughout the game and throughout the tournament and stuff. So it's just, just the impact that sports has. It's just the impact that the athletes have. Uh, you, in the pre-pandemic days, you used to travel all around the world following your football teams or following your cricket teams or uh, for the Olympics, for the World Cups, for the cricket champions trophies, for the bilateral series. So it's just the, the daily and the overall impact that sports has in, in people's everyday lives. And it's also, I mean, the world is not a happy place, especially right now. And it's just, it's just that little bit of joy and that little bit of relief that sports brings uh, to people's minds and hearts and stuff. Um, that it's important to talk about results, yes, but then it's also important because given the, the reach it has, uh, the influence it has to talk about what role it can play and what role it does play. So it's like, think of it, um, I mean, well, think of it like an advertising platform. You see all these major companies uh, putting their sponsors up on the t-shirts, on the replica shirts, uh, while the broadcast is going on inside the stadium. So, so for them, it's an amazing platform as well because the reach is so massive uh, and they know it's a perfect way to get to the audience. So in the same way, I think because of that very reach that we're talking about, um, it's uh, any message that sports plays out, any message that the athletes give out, it's going to reach hundreds of millions of people. Uh, so that's why it's very important to talk about the impact that sports has and the impact that sports can have. So, I mean, think of it of uh, the human interest stories that we do. Think of it as the, the background stories, uh, the stories of athletes from rags to riches, how they've changed, how they've uh, come up and how sports is playing uh, an important role in, in, in community building. Um, I can, if you want me, give you some examples of how we've, uh, like we've talked about disabled cricketers. I've uh, done stories on this one guy who's running in on crutches who lost his leg to polio 20 years ago. He wants to play cricket because he, he just wants to. Uh, he doesn't want his disability to be to, to leave him behind. Um, and then we talk about politics. We talk about what LeBron James is doing. 
um, in in politics. We talk about what uh, the UN, the US football team is doing for equal pay and women's rights and stuff. And then we talk about what the Australian cricket team has done recently, matching the men's cricket team record. So it's all about the um, what role it can play and what role it's playing. That's why we want to talk about uh, things other than the results on the field. In Al Jazeera's oh, and your personal reporting about the upcoming World Cup, what are the major topics and findings? I think, as with everybody else, human rights is, is one of the main topics that we've talked about. Because again, we remember um, how things were back in 2010 when Qatar was awarded the World Cup, and it's been on the forefront ever since then, the treatment of migrant workers, because it's, I think, what, more than 90% of Qatar's population right now comprises migrant workers. And by migrant workers, I don't mean just construction workers, I mean everyone who's not a citizen, everyone who's come from outside for work, whether it's a short-term uh, contract, whether it's a long-term, I know some people have been here for three months, I know some people who've been here for 20 years. Um, so it's just the treatment of the migrant workers, the state of work, the accommodation, the working conditions, uh, and those kind of things that we've uh, been discussing. But obviously there's, there's other things that we talk about as well. Um, like uh, how sports is playing. Again, I mean, this whole World Cup thing has shown a, a great spotlight on uh, the situation in the country. And it's it's a great positive that it's gonna improve things. It's already improved a lot of things. I mean, things have changed considerably since 2010 and things keep changing, things keep improving. There's obviously issues that take things back to, uh, back to where they were, but it's been worked on. Uh, we try and talk about these things in the stories that we do on all our platforms and stuff. Um, and the findings have been that, yeah, a lot of laws have been changed to benefit the workers and stuff, but it's the implementation that's slightly lacking. It's the issues that the government says we, we are going to sort out, but because it's still a lot of these changes in, in, in the infancy, it takes time to implement. And until it's implemented to, to a good percentage, there's always going to be issues. There will always going to be uh, pushbacks uh, from the business communities, from the sponsors. It's, it's just going to keep on going. You already mentioned that 90% of the people in the country are foreigners and uh, both of us uh, belong to this group of people. And uh, when looking at your uh, articles, I, I noticed that you are particularly interested in uh, a Qatar labor law and the situation of the migrant workers in the country. Uh, could you explain why you are particularly interested uh, in this topic? I think it's um, it's simply because again it's going to take me back to the first question that you asked about uh, talking about sports and the impact on society and stuff. And I think it's kind of similar to that uh, in this that you come here, you are living a good life, you sort of sit in a bubble, you forget about what's happening, and sometimes because you're living a good life, you forget about why you became a journalist. Um, so I think it's important to, to, to sort of just get out of that bubble, uh, start talking to people, start looking around to see what situation people are in and what sort of issues. Because like I said, more than 90% 90, 90 of people here are foreigners. They've uh, a, lot, a good percentage, I think the majority are here by themselves. They don't have families here because they cannot afford to keep their families here or because of their, the salaries, they're not gonna get the family visa for their spouses, for their children and stuff. So you need to think about the kind of situation they were in back home. 
um, the huge amount of money they pay just to get this job, um, agent payment, which is illegal in Qatar. Um, they paid, they took out loans and now they're here working. They're trying to save some money. They're trying to pay back those loans. So it's, it's, not, a, it's not a cushiony job for them. And working outdoors in Qatar, I mean, you and I know this, that it's, it's horrible outside in, in the summer. It's like 45 degrees with 50, 60, 70% humidity. So I think it's important to talk about this, the situation these people are in. Um, and I think they're doing a wonderful job uh, preparing this country for the 2022 World Cup that takes place uh, in about 18 months time. Um, but I think that a lot of times um, you see a lot of happy workers, which is great, but a lot of times you see a lot of unhappy workers and you need to make sure that you remember that you became a journalist to talk about the be the voice of the voice that talk about these people who cannot have their voices heard. So I think that's one of the reasons why when I realized after talking to a lot of these migrant workers, what the situation is, I started taking uh, a deeper interest into what the issues are, how can we benefit these people? I mean, there's, it's not like we're trying to bash the government, but we just want to make sure that the voices of these workers are heard and taken to the government so that they can improve things further for these people. Yeah, <clears throat> we are all grateful to the workers. Without them, the stadiums couldn't be built and the metro and uh, all the infrastructure development happening in this country. Uh, and since uh, there are so many, I think it's relevant to study their, um, uh, their, their life uh, and working conditions. And uh, you have published a number of articles. Let's talk about a recent one uh, in uh, March 2021, which was titled Labor Law Changes Are Qatar's Migrant Workers Better Off? Could you share with us how you conducted your investigation and what were your main results? So um, I'm just going to take you back for the 2020, March 2021 piece that you talked about. I'm going to take you back to May 2020 when the Qatar was in, uh, in lockdown, similar to a lot of countries around the world. Um, most of these workers um, were on a no work, no pay situation. They were told to stay at home because a lot of retail outlets were closed. Uh, a lot of offices were closed and they were told that they're not gonna get paid until unless they're working. And because the government had enforced lockdown, they weren't working. So these people, again, who owed a lot of money to people back home who had to um, look after the families back home, who had to look after themselves here, they were left short of money. So it all started with talking to two or three people and it sort of expanded into talking to about 2000 people. Um, so we did a lot of uh, research. We talked to a lot of people. We, uh, we talked to the government, we talked to the labor ministry, we talked to the government communications office. And Research was basically done in, in, in this way, but just talking to the people, see what their situation is, what they were doing. And then we did a piece on, Qatar announced this change in labor laws end of August, I think August 30th, 2020, when they said there is no need for an NOC anymore and uh, migrant workers can just apply for um, uh, Faras, we should say for our audience abroad, NOC means uh, no objection certificate, so one can switch jobs without approval from the employer. Sure. Yeah. So they, the, the government did away the need for an NOC, the donor objection certificate, like you said. So they didn't require the um, employer's permission on paper um, to change jobs anymore. What they did require later on was a resignation letter stamped and signed by the employer. Uh, so we did a story end of August when the law was the, law, the change in law was announced. Um, 
And then we talked to the government how they said this was a landmark uh, achievement, which it was because a lot of people were stuck to the jobs for the duration of their contracts uh, with a lot of issues, unpaid salaries, um, confiscation of passports um, and physical abuse as well. Uh, so that was that was a major achievement by by Qatar to do away with the with the, with the law requiring the employer's permission to change jobs, and then we did a follow up six months later. How are people doing? Are people actually succeeding in changing jobs? Are things better than what they were six months ago? Um, we spoke to the government. Unfortunately, the labor ministry, I consider them, they didn't um, respond to us, but the government communications office, which acts as a liaison between um, any media and any government department, they spoke to us. They told us more than 70,000 70, people have been successful in changing jobs, which is an amazing figure. Um, so that's the figure that we got from them. Um, however, when talking to a lot of uh, migrant workers, and this is something that we put in the story as well, a lot of people were not successful. A lot of people had issues. Um, and a lot of people told us um, on how, as soon as they applied for a change in sponsor, um, how the current sponsor canceled their QID and they had issues. And a lot of people had uh, police runaway cases registered against them. Obviously the labor department tells everyone to complain or go to CID if that's the case, if it's a false absconding cases. But there was still that fear among these workers, fear of being deported, fear of being uh, sent to prison and stuff. But um, again, a lot of people were successful. A lot of people were not unsuccessful. Then we saw early this year how the Shura Council recommended to the government to change some of the laws that they had changed in August. Because I spoke to one, a member of the Shura Council and she said when the laws were changed, it was more in favor of the workers as opposed to the businesses. Because according to her, now, if a young entrepreneur starts a business, he or she trains these people, pays for the recruitment cost, and in a few weeks' time, the worker decides he or she doesn't want to work for them anymore. He applies for a change of sponsor, then he goes to somebody else. All the initial investment that the young entrepreneur put in, that's all going to waste. So that was their reasoning for telling the government that we need to tweak the changes that were tweaked six months ago. Um, so I think, yeah, so we, we realize that things are still back and forth. There's a lot of good things that have happened. There's a lot of people who've been successful. And we, we mentioned that in the story, that a lot of people have been successful. A lot of people had issues. We mentioned the stories and we put it forward to the governments. But I think end of the day, it's the government's job to be ensuring uh, that these, these, these laws are implemented and enforced fully. And our job is to just give them examples and give them a snapshot of what's actually happening out there. That's what we keep on trying doing, trying to speak to the workers, as many workers as possible from different backgrounds, from different uh, industries, and see how things stand right now. How, how, how are you able to talk to workers? Are you going to their accommodations or on construction sites or contact them on social media or how does it work? I think it's a bit of all. So I think what we need to remember, this is something I, I mentioned at the start of the, this conversation, that migrant workers, I don't just mean construction site workers. I don't just mean labor workers. We spoke to a lot of cleaning company staff. We spoke to a lot of baristas. We talked to a lot of uh, people working in, in malls. Because remember last year when the lockdown was on, the malls were completely shut. Cleaning companies were told to keep their staff at home. So it's a lot of... Uh, reaching out to people. I spoke to a lot of people on social media. I spoke to a lot of people on the streets. I spoke to a lot of people 
who gave me their contacts, num uh, their, their friends' names and numbers, just so that I can speak to them. So it's, it's a lot about just, just going out there and speaking to people and just, just finding out information, like how these people are doing, um, how things were, and also, also talk to the sponsors, the employees, and what sort of situation they're in as well, because the lockdown affected businesses greatly as well. Uh, the government did announce um, some sort of uh, a big figure to help these businesses, but um, uh, it's still if you if you shut for six months, if there's no cash flow coming in, then it gets really difficult for them to survive as well. So again, research you just talk to people, you ask them to share contacts. I visited the industrial area, which is where a lot of labor workers are are based. Um, I spoke to a lot of cleaning company staff. I spoke to a lot of uh, security guards as well. I spoke to a lot of uh, retail staff in coffee shop. And we still do because again, that's part of my, our job as journalists. We, we speak to people. We don't sit and sort of just wait for information to come to us. That happens as well. And that's pretty good. But then you speak to people, then that person puts you in contact with somebody else. And that's how your network grows. Um, and then, yeah, that's how you find information to, to put forward in your stories. So um, coming back to uh, just sports, um, the FIFA World Cup 2022 is not the first mega sporting event Qatar is hosting. Um, and in 2019, Doha hosted the World Athletic Championship. Uh, and you wrote an article about it in October 2019 entitled, Was the Doha World Athletics Championship a success? Could you share with us some insights of your elaboration and what can we learn from 2019 for 2022? I think the learning curve, obviously every event that Doha hosts is a steep learning curve for them because there's not a lot of time left. Um, they held, uh, they hosted the 2006 Asian Games and then they won the bid for the World Cup in 2010. So there's a lot of events annually that were taking place pre-pandemic. So we had the men's tennis, we had the women's tennis, we've got the golf, we've got the MotoGP that took place last weekend. We've got the Diamond League Athletics meeting. And then obviously, yeah, the, the event that you talked about, the 2019 World Athletic Championships. That was actually a weird event uh, because it was held in, in, I think, I believe it was September. It was very hot. It was very humid. So they had a midnight marathon and there was a lot of issues with the marathon, according to the, the athletes, because it was so humid, even at midnight. First of all, midnight, uh, running a marathon at midnight is something that's unheard of. Uh, so they had to, the athletes said that they had to adjust their body clocks uh, just to make sure that the body is responding at that time of the night. Um, then they had to adjust to the humidity. I was out for the entire um, marathon and I was drenched and I wasn't running. I was just uh, reporting and I was taking photos and I was speaking to a lot of athletes and the coaches and also spectators. So that was, that was a bit weird on the timing of the events. The other thing, I mean, again, like I said, this was the, the international calendars are packed. They don't get a lot of time to be exploding in these events. So that was the time they had. And there was a lot of discussions they said that took place before confirming that the event is gonna be held at that time. So that was the outside outdoors midnight marathon. But even in the stadium uh, at the Khalifa stadium near the, in the Bilajo, um, initially it was a very thin crowd. Again, the timings played a, a big part in, in the crowd not turning up because it started late. It finished around midnight or past midnight. 
And when you look at the situation of workers in Qatar, everybody has work the next day. It was weekends. People have to get up at four, people have to get up at five, or people have families, they've got kids who need to go to school. So being out there watching it um, past midnight was not kind of practical for them as well. But again, it was also, I think, as the mood started building up, we saw that the, uh, the organizers made it, opened the doors for everyone. So there was no need for, to buy tickets anymore. And then we started seeing packed houses. Uh, but that was also a learning curve for the organizers because when you open the doors for everyone, there's a huge crowd rush that comes in. We saw massive crowds. You saw full houses inside the stadium, but in the corridors outside, there was there was a struggle. People were just like coming in. Uh, security didn't know when to stop people from coming in. So it was a bit of a it was a bit of a crazy one. It was a health and safety hazard, obviously. But again, that's something that Qatar is learning how to control. Crowd control is something they're going to have to learn pretty quickly as well, because right now it's an issue on how to let people come in, how to let people go out, because they're not used to massive crowds. Uh, at football stadium, you don't see 30, 40, 50, 60,000 people that you see or you will see in the, in the World Cup next year. So again, I mean, speaking to the organizers, speaking to the federations, it's a steep learning curve for them. Uh, there were some good things, there was bad things, there was issues, there was problems, but it was, I think end of the day, it was a success in terms of the actual events. There were some problems which needed ironing out, which I mentioned in the story that this is what the, 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 the timing was an issue. Uh, that's what the athletes complained. A lot of them pulled out of the marathon because of extreme heat and humidity, even though it was being held at midnight. Um, so yeah, I mean, in terms of sporting event, it was success. People signed up in the second part of the events, but in terms of timing, it was just a bit dodgy. Yeah. I, uh, I remember that there were many world records at the championship. So I think the conditions in the stadium were good, but uh, for the future, um, that might be an issue to consider having the walking and marathons competitions, maybe abroad, you know, and since there are ongoing discussions uh, to host the Olympics, maybe such kind of competition should be hosted in a neighboring country, which has uh, like other climate zones has mountains. So, uh, and yeah. I noticed also that in the foreign media, this was a major topic, uh, the bad conditions with the marathon, although within the stadiums, everything worked pretty well. So uh, maybe that's something that could be considered uh, for the future to have just this, because it's just one out of many, many uh, uh, events uh, to, to maybe have it abroad. Um, Faras, Let's dedicate the last minutes of the podcast to your passion, cricket. Um, uh, you wrote in 2009 a book uh, about cricket. Uh, uh, could you, uh, before we talk a bit about cricket and Qatar, could you first tell us what motivated you to write the book? And um, uh, for those of us who did not read the book, could you share some insights? So, um, cricket, <laughs> well, I was born in Pakistan. And if you're born in Pakistan, you live and die cricket. You're out in the streets. Well, back in the day, things have changed considerably now. Now the kids have their um, iPads and iPhones and tablets and whatnot on the streets. So they're not actively involved in sport as we were back in the day. But in our times, we were playing cricket in the morning. We were playing cricket in the afternoon. We even played cricket at night. So it was this passion that was in our blood, to be honest, um, following cricket. And after I qualified as a journalist, I um, started writing on crickets. 
Um, I started writing on technology, so I was a, a tech journalist as well. But then I started working for uh, ESPN Cricket Info, which is a cricket world's crickets, uh, world's biggest cricket website. Um, and then I started working, writing for a lot of newspapers and publications because, again, it was like a, a dream job. As a kid, you dream of meeting these cricketers and meeting these players that you watch on your TV screens. And now I was there, I was talking to them, I was hanging out with them, I was speaking to them, I was interviewing them. Um, so, yeah. I, I became a cricket journalist at that time. And in 2009, there was a cricket event that was taking place in, in the UK. It says the World T20 2009. And I was based, I was in London at that time. Uh, so I was following the, the tournament. I was reporting it for a Pakistani newspaper, which is called Dawn. Um, so I was following the Pakistani teams, every training session, every match, every press conference and stuff. And I was just reporting and writing and everything. And as luck had it, Pakistan actually won that tournament. This was the world, this was the first world tournament they had won since 1992. So it was quite an achievement by the team. And because I was following their every movement, every training session, a friend of mine recommended, why don't you write a book on it? And I was like, okay, I'll write a book, not realizing how difficult it is to write a book. Uh, but I started writing it. I started speaking to a lot of people about it. Uh, the book basically, takes us on a journey, the roller coaster journey that Pakistan cricket delivers with every single game. Um, so it talks about what happened in the games. It talks about what happened outside. It has a few interviews. It has a lot of photos because there do a lot of photojournalism as well. And then I think it was in September of 2009 that I started writing the book. And by December, I was finished because I just dedicated a lot of time to writing that book. Um, so I wrote it, I got it edited, I got a lot of friends to help me out, I got it designed, I got it published myself, I got it printed. It was a nightmare. It was a nightmare and there was times I was thinking, what am I doing? This is such a crazy thought, not having any experience of publishing a book, but I'm doing it. But I'm glad I did. It, it was published in December 2009 and I think it was uh, it was one of the, the happiest days of my life actually seeing that physical book in my hand and people talking about it. And then we had like a couple of book launches where people talked about crickets. And then uh, it was amazing. We had some former players turn up at the, the book launches as well. So that was a great feeling as well. Um, and then, yeah, so that talks, uh, that talks about uh, the Pakistan, Pakistan's journey in that tournament and how they went from outsiders and no hopers so actually from that, that trophy on, I think it was June 21st, 2009. I actually remember the day, the moments and how it happened. It was a summer day in London, which is very well, sunny day as well, which is kind of rare to be, to be happening there. Um, yeah, so that's the book. It's called Champions Again. And that's how it came about 12 years ago. Well, yeah, and now you are living uh, uh, in the diaspora uh, and uh, uh, ma uh, major migrant communities in, in Qatar are, co are coming from uh, cricket-loving uh, countries like India, like Pakistan, Bangladesh. Um, so could you share with us how do you follow cricket here and is there also something like a cricket community in Doha? There's thousands and thousands of, I mean, it's not played, Qatar does play international cricket, but it's not, uh, it's not like one of the, the higher ranked teams. But when it comes to local crickets, I mean, we can talk about if you go to a, a field on a, on a Friday morning, 
Uh, and by field, I don't mean lush green grassy cricket stadiums. I mean any any field, any barren field in, in Qatar. Uh, you'll see all these cement pitches there or made up pitches where people just water the, the, the soil area, the sand area and make it sort of stiff. You'll see in every ground, you'll see about seven or eight games taking place simultaneously. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's 10 degrees, it doesn't matter if it's 40 degrees, they're gonna be out there playing cricket from seven o'clock in the morning and they'll take a break uh, and then they'll come back in the afternoon to finish off the game or have a second game. So there's there's a quite a lot of competitive cricket going on. There's a lot of club cricket going on. Um, there's one proper stadium in Qatar which has held international games. I think this was back in 2014 when Pakistan, Ireland and South African women's teams, they turned up and played uh, a few matches. It's an amazing stadium. It's right smack in the middle of the industrial area. At that time, it was a pain to get to. There was major roadworks going on, but it's a beautiful stadium. It's, it's got floodlights as well. So it's held um, a lot of club games. It's held international games, like I said. Uh, it's held a lot of events and it's it's uh, quite, a, quite a good way for this uh, migrant community that you talked about from India, from Pakistan, to Bangladesh, Nepal, and also Sri Lankans. Sri Lankans are crazy about cricket. You'll see a lot of these Sri Lankan teams with the proper um, team jerseys and the numbers and the names written on the back, gathering at seven o'clock on a Friday morning, preparing for crickets. Um, they follow the game religiously as well. They had an amazing cricket team, international cricket team, which is I think, going down now. They won the World Cup in 1996, so they are cricket obsessed. But uh, I mean, it's 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 about time that Qatar actually held proper international tournament. So I spoke to the cricket organization a few years ago and there were plans on hosting it. And the Pakistan Cricket Board, uh, they were planning on hosting their games here as well, but then things didn't turn out because Dubai has an established infrastructure. Uh, sorry, UAE has an established infrastructure. They've got grounds in Dubai, in Abu Dhabi, in Sharjah. So they prefer to play there. Uh, but I think it's it, it will take a bit of a push from Qatar, but I think it's about time given 90% of my of the, the population of Qatar is from abroad and it's it's a cricket loving country, it's a cricket loving nature uh, field as well. So it's going, but it's not going as strong as it should. Thank you, Faras. This was really fantastic. I tremendously enjoyed the conversation with you. Uh, for uh, all people who listen to us, uh, I would just like to highlight at the end that we had a related uh, blog and a related uh, podcast on uh, the World Cup and the media. Professor Craig LaMay from Northwestern University wrote a blog article entitled Why Media Liberalization in Qatar Would Serve an Important 2022 Legacy. And we had a previous podcast with David Harding from the British newspaper, The Independent, uh, and who used to work in Qatar in the Associated Press office. And we talked with him about uh, media and the World Cup. So check it out, please, if you are interested in uh, the topic as uh, a media and the World Cup. Thank you, everybody, for listening to us today. And thank you very, very much, Faras. Good luck for you personally and for your future work. Thank you very much. It was good talking about cricket, especially at the end, but it was also good talking about the, the migrant workers and the Qatar World Cup preparation and everything that we talked about. It's great time.